2: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash Acast.
1: G-A-L-D-E-M. G-A-L-D-E-M.
3: This one is good.
4: Welcome to a brand new season of Growing Up with Galdem. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of color.
5: My name is Niella Arboyne and I'm the Life Editor at Galdem.
4: And I'm Natty Kasimvala, former editor and longtime contributor at Galdem.
5: Galdem is an award-winning media company committed to sharing the perspectives of people of colour from marginalised genders. Each week, we invite a guest to respond to old diary entries, letters or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up. You can find
4: Growing Up With Gaudem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yasmin Abdulmajid is a Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster, and award-winning social advocate with a background in mechanical engineering. One of the 2020 LinkedIn changemakers, Yasmin is a globally sought-after advisor on issues of social justice focused on race, gender, and faith. Yasmin's internationally acclaimed TED Talk, What Does My Headscarf Mean to You?, has been viewed over 2 million times, and she has published a memoir and two fiction novels with Penguin Random House. Her social and current affairs commentary has appeared in Time, The Guardian, and Teen Vogue, and she is a regular on the BBC, Al Jazeera, TRT, and Monocle 24. In all her work, Yasmin is an advocate for transformative justice and a fairer,
5: safer world for all. Amazing. It is great to have you on the show with us today. How are you?
3: I'm doing okay. I've had a, you know when you have like life is going normally for a while and then you have like all sorts of things happen all at the same time. So my last week I've just been dealing with a lot of life stuff. But today I woke up very excited for this conversation. So you're the, you guys are the bright spark of my week. So I'm happy to be here. That's very lovely. That's good to hear. (laughs) You're the bright spark of our week
4: too.
3: Oh, stop it. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's all the mutual love. I'm so here for it. Actually, one nice thing did happen this morning. Somebody sent me, this is relevant to like the book stuff, so I'll share it. The books that I write have like lots of Arabic words in them. And a friend of mine who's Sudanese sent me a message. She was like, I've been really sad because my nieces haven't been like speaking Arabic. And, you know, I've been trying really hard to get them to speak Arabic, but they've not been doing it, and then this morning, one of them just said, like, she said a phrase, she was like, oh, like, Sarah, like, Auntie Sarah, like, a fikra, which means like, I have an idea, and my, and she was like, I was like, what did you say? She was like, Ana fikra, and my friend was like, where did you learn that? She was like, I learned it from You Must Be Layla, and I was like, oh. So she read oh, my book and she actually lovely. learned the words. I was like, yes. <laughs> oh,
4: that's the that's that good start, stuff. That is <laughs> literally the good stuff. You, good stuff. you yeah. know what I mean? This
3: is, this is why we do what we do. I was like. Oh. That's amazing. Tears. Yeah, it was great. That's
4: Shaping so a future generation. Do you
3: know what I'm saying? We're out of
4: here. <laughs> We're trying.
5: Incredible. <laughs> how are you both? Oh, how are we? That's a very good question.
4: That's actually the first time I think I've ever been asked
5: that question <laughs> on the show,
4: which is pretty weird. But thank you very much for asking. I am doing okay. I think I'm in a similar space to you in terms of you know life admin, work admin. Everything is happening all at once, but it's all right. And busy is supposed to be good, so yeah.
3: It's we're supposed managing. to be, isn't it?
5: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm good. I'm currently on a semi-holiday, so I've been doing lots of swimming and walking and just being in nature. Oh, wholesome. Yeah, Yeah, very wholesome vibes this week. Well, thank you for asking us, and I'm glad you're doing well too. I wanted to ask a bit more about your writing and basically how you became a writer and you were a mechanical engineer before. I was. How did that transition happen? (laughs) Very
3: unexpectedly, actually. So the long story, kind of not short but medium, is like I was always somebody that loved reading. I was definitely the nerd. Like when I started high school, I essentially like lobbied the library to buy all of the books that I wanted to read. My favourite person in the whole school was a librarian. So I was that kid. I did this too. Did you? Yes. <laughs> I made my librarian
5: buy all the books. <laughs>
3: yeah. People are like, be we the change you school. want to see in the world. And I was yeah. like, the change that I want to see in the world is more books. So definitely big read up, but never, ever, ever imagined that I would be somebody who wrote. You know, I remember the one time I tried to write like fanfic, my friend was like, Yasmeen, this is just literally the book that you're reading now. There is no fiction. Where is the imagination? I was like, okay, that. What book it? <laughs> I can't even It was like some, I was really into fantasy when I was like in high school, like, you know, Robin Hobb and Brandon Sanderson and all of these folks, Ursula Le Guin. And so like whatever book I was reading at the time, I was just essentially redoing the plot with new names. And she was like, this is not original. I was like, oh, sad face. And so I really like believed this story that I was not an original writer. You know, I couldn't be somebody that wrote. I'll just be happy reading. And I was in love with cars. I loved cars. I loved driving fast. I love building things. And so I went into mechanical engineering. And also everybody in my life was an engineer. My dad was an engineer. My little brother studied mechanical engineering. Most of my aunts and uncles are engineers. My mom did architecture, which is kind of like engineering, kind of. We're all like, sorry, mom, you're an architect. Like we forgive you. Uh, <laughs> the engineering shade in my family was strong. So like, I was not really surrounded by anyone who was into art and culture. It was very STEM heavy in my household. So after I studied, I did mechanical engineering and I ran the university's race car team and I was on track to like go and build race cars and like design cars. That's all I wanted to do with my life. But after I graduated from university, I went to Sudan to spend like, you know, the obligatory like half year, whatever, with your grandma to learn how to cook and find a husband. And in that time, it was like 2012, Arab Spring had just kicked off in, like, Libya, Tunisia, etc., Egypt, blah, blah, blah. And Sudan was attempting to overthrow the government. And so I started a blog. I started a blog, like, because also at the time there weren't too many English writing, English speaking and writing folks in Sudan on the ground. So I, like, you know, was trying to do my bit and I was writing a blog. And then I, in order to save up to do my master's degree, because I wanted to do a master's degree in motorsport... I took a job on the oil and gas rigs in Australia. And so when I went back to Australia, like I continued blogging about what it was like to work on the rigs. And that's really when I started to write, I would say, in a way that was like a little bit more consistent. But it was never like something that I thought was serious. Like I was like, you know, I'm an engineer that's just like recounting what's happening. I'm not somebody who has like flair and whatever. And it was at the time. So the crossover happened when... I was doing lots of volunteer work and community work and there was a woman that I was on a council with who I was telling her a story about something that had happened on the rig. Like somebody had, I'd walked onto the rig floor and someone was like, hey, Yasmin, do you hear that ticking? I was like, oh, it's going to be a terrorist joke. I was like, and this guy's name was Angry. I was like, what Angry? It's your biological clock. I was like, mate, <laughs> I'm Excuse me. <laughs> what are you saying? T- <laughs> no, literally. People would say it like all sorts of I mean that's like one of the most kind of like G-rated thing. Like people just said the wildest stuff, which was so normal to me, right? And I was telling this woman this and she looked at me, she was like, Oh my god, you have to write about this. I was like, no, nobody's gonna be interested. She was like, trust me, people are gonna wanna know. And so she commissioned me, and like I would say my journey into writing is definitely people taking chances on me when I didn't believe myself, which I'm very, very grateful for. She commissioned me to write an essay. On my time on the rigs, I wrote an essay, it got published, and then off the back of that essay, people were like, what is this Sudanese Muslim woman doing on these oil rigs with all of these men? Like, I was the first woman they hired in my department in Australia. People were just like, people had no, I would walk onto the rigs and they'd be like, did you just come out of prison? Is that why you're here? No, people were like, wow. And because I was young too, you know, so, but I also I just had no idea it would be like this. I was just like, oh, I'm just going to work, you know, on my little helicopter, whatever. <laughs> and so wrote this essay and then people were like, would you like to write a book? And I was like... No, I want to build cars. What are you talking about? This is outrageous. And so like people were offering me book deals and I was like, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. I don't have time. And my mom sat me down. She's like, Yasmina, take the bloody book deal. She was like, people wait all their lives to get book deals. I was like, but mama, I'm like 23 years old. What am I going to write about? She was like, you know, maybe instead of focusing on yourself, you can talk about all the strong women in your life that you think are really important. And, you know, you can tell people about life in Sudan or whatever. I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And so I ended up writing this book, Yasmeen's Story, which was really an homage to my aunts and my grandmas and, you know, all the starting Youth Without Borders and all the kind of like different experiences I'd had. And then... The next kind of like point at which things didn't quite go to plan was the oil company that I was working for at the time was like, you can't be writing books in your time off. And I was like, it's like, I don't talk about the oil company. And I had told them when I got hired, I was like, look, I'm writing this book. It's got nothing to do with the company. Like I'm going to be really above board about it. I was literally the highest ranked drilling graduate in the whole region. I had done like the qualification of five years in like 18 months. Like I was really doing well in the company. I was like on a fast track to management, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, no, all of this, you know, stuff that you're doing outside on the side is like people's perception is you're not working as hard in the company. So I had just been given a promotion to go run my own rig offshore Brunei. They took away that promotion, they docked my pay, they docked my bonus and they said instead of working on you're going to have to just sit in the what? office for the next year. So I was like, but I haven't done anything wrong. And my boss was like, yeah, the thing is most people can't be excellent at two things. And so because you're excellent at writing, they think you can't be doing your job. And I was like, but you know that I'm doing my job. And he was like, yeah, it doesn't matter what we, th- what I know, what matters is the perception. And so I decided to take a year leave without pay and tour with the book. And kind of by the end of that year, I was like, you know, when I went back to the company and kind of talked about my options and stuff, they were like, listen, we would love to have you. You're a great engineer, but you just have to agree to not do stuff on like outside. And it's like, oh, so you want me to choose between and one of the senior guys is like, yeah, you have to either choose between being Yasmin, the engineer or Yasmin, the individual. You can't be both. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to give up my voice for an oil company. Y'all are like moving that, as it were. And so I I decided to leave engineering and I was like, well, I guess I'm going to write books now. <laughs> wow. And so it's like, it's not the kind of like, I always wanted yeah. to write and now here I am. It's kind of like, it was a weird process and it's taken me a long time to kind of be like, Oh, I can make this mine as much as engineering was because it was never something that. And I know lots of people love and have always wanted to be writers, and this is not necessarily the first choice that I had. But what I will also say is that, like, this is something that I try to escape doing for a long time. I try to not write and I try to not use my voice for a long time. It always found but, you. You know, yep. it kept chasing me.
4: Yeah, it was <laughs> like, hey, girl. <laughs> That's amazing. That's such an yeah. unconventional, mm. kind of maddening story. And I guess like, I wanted to just circle back to something you talked about briefly there, which I'm sure has might have even changed by now, but I won't project that onto you. And it was just that you, you've mentioned in the past that you say you found more belonging on an oil rig than in the ladies' section of the mosque, which I thought was a really powerful quote. And I guess I wanted to hear more about mm. that experience and how... Your relationship might have even changed with those kinds of spaces since Mm. like, you know, your writing career was forcibly taken off.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting to think back on things we've written as young people or as younger people. Right. I think what is underlying in that quote and which I think is still true to an extent is that sometimes when you are part of a group of people where there are expectations of who you should be those expectations can be quite stifling in the ladies you know area of the mosque there's an expectation of what kind of woman i should be what kind of muslim i should be what kind of african i should be what kind of sudanese person i should be and i find expectation you know from anyone especially from people who think they have the right over me i find that really oppressive is not the word but like suffocating perhaps I find it overwhelmingly suffocating and so I went and I sought places where people had no idea what I could put po- so they had nothing to kind of like benchmark me against right I was just like I was l- literally an alien some of them had never met a Muslim in their life you know most of them had never worked with women and so anything that I decided I was was just like oh well I guess that's what People like you were like them, you know. And so I think it was less about the men on the rigs themselves and more about the freedom to choose who I wanted to be. And I think that's still something that I constantly seek is the freedom to choose who I want to be.
6: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: I would say that I think today I would find it incredibly difficult, that environment, because, I mean, like, <laughs> I just take much less bullshit, yeah. right? When I was in my early 20s, I accepted a lot more. You know, I accepted the things that people would say. I accepted the sexism and the racism and the Islamophobia as just the price of being there. And now I have so few fucks to give, you know, I would immediately cut my own career short, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> it's career limiting moves, as my father says. <laughs> I'll be honest, a big part of that was moving to a city like London, because I grew up in a city where there just weren't people. I mean, there are definitely more now. I grew up in Brisbane in the nineties. You know, my dad reckons, we were the second Sudanese family there. The next one didn't come till 10 years later. There weren't that many African people. There was no kind of like, there might have been, but my family certainly was not part of like a group. They had a very first generation migrant mentality of like, let's put our head down and work and just accept what the world doles out for us. And like, you know, we will be excellent. What I will say is we didn't ever internalize stuff. Like my parents were never like, oh, we're lesser because these people think we're lesser. My parents were always like, oh, these poor white people don't know how great we are. So that was always like nice, but it was very much we're in their country, so we should do things by their rules essentially and we should accept or work around the limitations that were set. But I think, you know, as I went through these experiences and as my politics developed and became my own I was very much like why should I why should I accept the binary limited choices that you provide for me like I'm not interested in that anymore and so yeah it's bittersweet in a way I think thinking back to those experiences because I really did at the time feel like I belonged but of course Mm. it was very conditional belonging wasn't it? so true and I think what you
4: expressed there is like it's kind of that like beauty and luxury of second generation immigrants and onwards like the assimilation that happens at the start so that we have the
3: choice to kind of
4: yeah to draw our own boundaries Mm,
3: 100 yeah it wouldn't be possible you know like exactly we have an arrogance that our parents couldn't afford and it
4: yeah I think it's really humbling to remember that as well because I think Especially when you are of like this kind of disposition, it can be frustrating and like you just wanna fight every single battle. But yeah, it's really humbling to think about kind of like the roles that we each play as we kind of infiltrate these systems and change them from within.
3: I sometimes also don't know if it could have happened yeah. any other way. Like I don't know if I started out with the attitude that I have now, if I would have ended up mm. where I am today. And that's like Maybe not the most – I think it's a very honest thing to say. Like I would not have the platform that I have if from the very beginning I didn't accept the, the sort yeah. of framework that – Yeah, and get into in. it. Right, I think I would have – and yeah, 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 yeah. The only reason I could afford to move to London by myself, not knowing anyone without a job, was because I worked in oil and gas for four years. And the only reason I survived in oil and gas for four years was because I accepted the way that it was. And that's like a really weird truth, right? I don't know, I can't change the past, but it is something that I reflect on when people are like, would you do things differently? I'm like, I don't know, because I have choices now that are only possible because of those decisions. We'll get into that.
4: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll get into more of that. But I think that section you just talked about in terms of you guys' experience in Brisbane and kind of in those communities in, in Australia, links perfectly into your extracts which I'd love for you to read for us now and just give us a little bit of context when did you write it what's it about and then just go into reading that'd be lovely.
3: So when I was living in Brisbane I did like quite a lot of community work and that sort of thing and I started an organisation called Youth Without Borders and won a few awards and so on because of it and Off the back of some of those awards, they asked me to write about, they were like, even though you have no expertise in any of this stuff, would you like to write about racial politics in Queensland? And I was like, sure, no worries. So I think this was maybe written when I was like 20 or 21 off the back of the Cronulla riots, which were riots in Sydney where essentially white Australian people started attacking Lebanese Australian people for no real reason. So this is it. In 2005, when news of the Cronulla riots spread, my family was inundated by calls from friends and family overseas asking if we were okay. We're fine, we would say. Queensland's different. That's how I'd always seen it. Growing up in Brisbane in the 90s and 1000s, I remember associating racially motivated violence with Sydney and Melbourne. Although there were incidents in Queensland, it was never as common or visible. Even after 9-11, although our mosque was burnt down and there were incidents of racism, the community didn't experience the widespread and intense incidents of racial hatred as exhibited at the Cronulla riots, or more recently, the attacks against Indian international students. So why is Queensland different? Did the numbers support my anecdotal evidence? Are we more cohesive, or is it a case of luck and it just hasn't happened yet? According to census data, New South Wales and Victoria have an overrepresentation of LOTE, language-other-than-English-spoken-at-home population, with Sydney and Melbourne's low population at 37.8% and 33.7%, compared to Brisbane's 17.9%. It's quite clear, then, that the ethnic population density in Queensland is significantly less than those in the southern states, perhaps a reason for less racial violence. Furthermore, the southern capital cities have more densely populated areas, with particular groups of migrants that have been settled for longer, whereas Brisbane and Queensland's migrant populations are younger and less dense. In 1996, Queensland had 29.7% fewer Lote speakers compared to New South Wales. On the other hand, the Scanlands Foundation's Mapping Social Cohesion 2012 report states that Queenslanders are particularly likely to hold negative views on cultural diversity. Numbers may not always tell the whole story. As a lifetime Brisbaneite, I don't think we have a widespread issue with racial violence as we are a little different to our southern neighbours. Firstly, the settlement of racially diverse population hasn't been in the dense concentrations of lengthy settlement as seen down south. This has allowed ethnically diverse populations to better embed themselves into the fabric of the mainstream community. With that familiarity comes understanding, and the reduction of the likelihood of racial violence. Secondly, as a society, we are now much more aware of the needs of migrants and low populations, having learnt from Sydney and Melbourne. As populations now settle in Queensland, the many support mechanisms available from government and organisations help alleviate many of the issues based around settlement that may provoke violence. When my family moved to Australia almost 20 years ago, the level of support was essentially non-existent. Now, there are extensive networks to help, and the positive impact this has cannot be understated. However, it cannot be denied that there are negative, dare I say racist, views around the state. We've been lucky so far. I feel safe, accepted, and don't find my race a major inhibitor in my ability to participate. We shouldn't be complacent, however, and, as we become more racially diverse, we must work together to ensure our community isn't marred by the manifestation of negative views and the racially motivated violence that can truly damage the fabric of our society. Bless little 21, so much to unpack. Yasmina. <laughs>
5: Aww. Aww. Honestly. So- Or did it feel like reading that extract years later?
3: I can so see the impact of, you know, the mainstream view or, you know, my parents' view in that. Like, I would say that what I was doing is parroting my parents' view on why Sydney and Melbourne had more problems than us people in Brisbane. You know, it's very much like, oh, we're not like the people down south. And it makes me very sad as well because I know what is coming. For that Yasmin, I know that she's going to have her understanding of what's going on pretty roundly smashed and that's going to be really confronting. But also part of the reason I wanted to share this extract actually is to show that like people do not always start knowing everything, right? Because like I was somebody that people looked up to on this stuff, which is wild to me because I didn't know I was an engineer. This was not stuff I studied. I just had my anecdotal and personal experience to draw from. And it's such a classic example of being like, well, you know, I understand the world in this particular way. Let me, like, make a grand sweeping statement, therefore, about the nature of things. Uh, My understanding of, like, racial violence or racism or white supremacy is essentially non-existent. My parents, like, grew up in a majority black or an African society, so they have no understanding of it. So, like, I guess... For me, what's important to take away from this is, like, there is, A, who are we listening to and why are we listening to people who may not be well-versed in this stuff? So it's a case of being, like, this is a reminder for me to always think about whose voices I'm listening to and what they know and a reminder that anecdotal experiences don't tell us everything. But also, like we grow, you know, we grow. And it's really nice for me to look back on that and be like, oh, wow, I have grown so much. And I understand things so much better. So like, in a way, it's embarrassing. But in a way, it's also like, yeah, I mean, I didn't know better at that time. And now I do. And it's important for me to show that I have grown, will continue to grow. And that's okay. I think that's that's amazing. And
4: I think it is one of those things, like you said before you, you started reading the extract of, like, being given the mic as, like, a spokesperson for a community just by virtue of, like, being a part of that community is amazing. And it leads to, you know, so many people feeling like they have a voice. But there is also, like, a burden that it put places on everyone to be, like, an expert and educated on subjects that people spend their whole life studying. And I think especially in less diverse
3: places. Yeah. And also, people didn't listen to me when I told them that I wasn't an expert. Like, for a really long time, I was like, I don't want to write on this stuff. I'm not interested in being the quote-unquote representative. But people didn't listen. And I was like, well, gosh, you know, if I do not take it, well, I guess, you know, they're going to give it to, like, this white person named Barbara. So, like, maybe maybe I should. I'm a better option, yeah. Just so at least there's a different face, you know. Right, I'm a better option than that. But, like, it's not like I sought these things either necessarily, but people you know, for better or for worse, we're like, oh, well, you're from this community. You'll be able to tell us. And and as you say, Natalie, like, we're not necessarily experts. We're experts in our own experience, in our own lived experience. And I was an expert in my lived experience. But it's only now that I can say that, you know, I'm well-versed in the things that I was being asked to speak about.
4: Mm. I guess I wanted to ask more about that lived experience as well. Like, because I think even, you know, coming from that side of things, which I think we'll touch on later... Like when you were growing up in Brisbane, were you aware of your kind of position in society? Did you have any experiences as a young person dealing with race or that surprised you when you were finally like confronted with race? Like what was it actually like growing up at that time?
3: I think the thing to remember is that we were overwhelmingly discriminated against because of our faith. My mum wore a headscarf. I started wearing the hijab when I was 10 shortly after 9-11 And so, like, I found it and I was part of the Muslim community. So my primary identity was, like, being Muslim, being discriminated against because I was Muslim. And so, like, race, obviously, you know, and we know from the concepts of intersectionality, obviously played into it, but I didn't have the language or the ability to distinguish whether something was happening because of my race or because I was visibly Muslim, right? My parents never spoke about racism. My parents spoke about racism in the UK and in France, my dad would always be like, because he lived in the UK in the '70s and '80s, right? He was like, "It's terrible there, you know. It's awful. It's super racist. Australia is so much better." And so for me, I was like, "Oh, Australia doesn't have racism. Europe has racism, but Australia doesn't." And so if my parents are telling me that there is no racism in Australia, I didn't even think that like I had the ability to the radar to see it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I was like, "Oh, Baba says it's better." Baba says this place doesn't have racism and people are mean to me and they burn my mosque down because I'm Muslim. So this race stuff must not be a factor. Only once in a while would my mum say something like within the Muslim community, she'd be like, oh, they don't listen to us because we're African. Or, you know, my dad might say like, oh, you know, it's because we're black that they don't give us the, the senior opportunities. Every once in a while I would be introduced to these concepts like through internal politics in the Muslim community. But I think, again, that's one of the big things that I learned when I moved to London is because I didn't call myself black until I moved to London because, like, in Sudan, there are South Sudanese people who are much, much more darker skinned. And so I was like, oh, well, they have a right to call themselves black, but I don't experience racism in the same way they do, so I don't have the right to call myself black. And it wasn't until I moved to London and I was like, yeah, I'm this brown girl, whatever, and people were like, what? Are you, like, South Asian? I'm like, no, I was born in Sudan. And they were like, so you're black. I'm like, am I? They're like, yeah, what is wrong with you? I was like, oh. That's
5: so (laughs) interesting. I
3: I know. It's like so – and my parents never call themselves black. I asked my mom. I was like, are we black? And she was like, no, we're Sudanese. And then also in Australia – when I was growing up, if you were black, you were indigenous, like indigenous people calling themselves black. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm not indigenous. So I, I never felt like I had the right to be black because I didn't understand what blackness meant as, you know, as not a skin color thing, but as like a, you know, a political thing, a racial hierarchy thing, a white supremacy thing, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, it's like, it's complicated, right?
4: Yeah. Both of your faces <laughs> are like, oh. So, <laughs> so much to think about. <laughs> I don't know.
5: I was thinking about what you were just saying about Australia and how you told it was less racist because I guess from our perspective, from the UK, we're told the exact opposite. I
3: know. We're told Australia
5: is terrifying and really racist and, like, it's quite interesting that we're both being told the opposite. The opposite.
3: The reason my dad always thought Australia was less racist was because he said that, like, he had two experiences in the 70s in London and also, remember, my dad grew up in Sudan thinking that London was, like, you know, the streets, with gold, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Goes to university and he's treated like trash, especially because he's incredibly smart. And he was, like, the nicest people I met. He, like, he saw something, like, somebody fell on the street and the only person who stopped and helped was an Australian. And, like, this experience for him cemented that like the English are cold-hearted people and the Australians are kind you know like it was like it's such a fascinating thing to like where the story for yeah. Australia came from for him.
4: It's mad how much those small interactions can literally shape your entire worldview. and I think in a way I think it's really reassuring to hear a different perspective on like mm-hmm. how the world set up because i think yeah like nai said like so often we're all told these stories and we tell ourselves these stories about you know like what happens over there is like mad like yeah. it's bad here yeah. but like it's not as bad as over, there. over, there, it's yeah, over there yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm never going over there so i think yeah it's really interesting to kind of hear it from that perspective and i think i was also just like really fascinated by what you said about kind of like the different politics that are happening within the Muslim community which I don't think I've ever really heard a perspective on Mm. in terms of how race can play into different societies that are brought together by religion and then again with like the kind of what you were saying about you know like even within Sudan and within other communities kind of how blackness is on the gradated scale but yeah I'd love Mm. to hear more about all of that and like (laughs) Just And then I guess specifically like when you did come to London, how you felt or just in general about how you view your position in the black community, in the black diaspora Mm. today.
3: So for people who are listening who might not know, like I left Australia in a very, essentially what happened is I had like a pretty awful 2017 where I went from being like, you know, the token good Muslim girl to being like literally like the most publicly hated Muslim in the country, right? And the experience that I had completely smashed all of those ideas that I had about Australia as being a place where, you know, because I, for better or for worse, I did believe that if I worked hard, I could make a difference. And if I showed people that, you know, an individual... I thought I could change the world through individual excellence, right? And through, like, creating community organizations. You know, I started Youth Without Borders when I was 16, and then I started an organization called Mumtaza, which was about getting women of color into positions of power. I was all about, like, let's go grassroots. Let's go work through the existing system. And then the experience that I had in 2017, which I won't go too much into, but what it did was it showed me that the system would never let us win, right? The system was the problem. And I felt so shattered because I was like, all of the things that I believed are not true. And my parents, who were the people that I like, admired and respected and you know, who taught me everything I knew about the world, they didn't know how to handle it because- it also challenged everything they understood about the world. So my dad just kind of pretended like it never happened. And my mum was just like, you know, she'd be like, why do you keep tweeting? And I'm like, "Mom, that's not the problem. The problem is not my, I'm not, you know, you sound like them, mum, please stop. You know, and so like the reason I chose London was like legitimately partly because it was a place where I could get a visa quite quickly, but also because I was like, I need to learn how to make sense of the world now. I don't have any guidance and I didn't know where to look. I didn't know who to learn from, but I had visited London like during 2017 for like an event and people were like, dude, what happened to you in Australia would never happen here because people have sense firstly, but also because like people understand things in a very different way because there's backup because there's massive like community, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Oh my God. It would be amazing to walk down the street and not be the only one who looks like me. To not feel like I have to figure all of this out myself. When I arrived in London, everyone was like, "Oh, bum Babylon man! Like, this is a terrible place!" Like, blah. And I was like, "Y'all don't know where I've come from. Y'all do not know where I've come from, right?" So like, um, so I am. I'm making the most of this. I was so happy. I remember when I got on the train from Heathrow. I like saw two black women sitting across from me. I was so happy to see black people. I was just like, "Hi." They were like, the fuck? They were like, uh, get out of here. <laughs> 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 <So> they <Literally, literally laughs> were like, nah, don't
5: speak to me. Literally. And were you were like, like no. I love it here. <laughs> <Literally>, <laughs> I was so happy to see speak black to before. each other in London. <laughs> oh, literally.
3: The way they gave me these, like, screw faces, I was like, okay. <laughs> like, from the provinces, like, you know, like, so grim. And so... When I arrived I just wanted to soak everything up. I went to every event I possibly could. I was like, who's this guy Stuart Hall? Like, who are these all? Like, let me buy every single book. I like, oh, it was amazing. And I mean, it's not that long ago, right? I moved in 2017. It's not that long ago, but I think it's just like testament to like how thirsty I was for that knowledge and for that community and like every type of, pe- you could find anyone in London. You know, I spent so much time in queer spaces cause it was just like, it was just like, here's a place where any person you want to be is okay here. And that just blew my mind coming from a place where, you know, you were very, it was so straight jacketed the way that you needed to be. I felt so grateful to just be learning and to not be the person in the room who knew the most about the stuff because I thought it was ridiculous yeah, I just wanted to learn. I remember a friend of mine, this must have been, when was this, like maybe, I had like visited London for an event and this was one of the reasons I decided to move to London. And a friend of mine was running like an event, like a fundraising event for Sierra Leone. And he took me to like, just like a regular slam poetry evening, right? And he like, and I walked into this room. I was like, oh my God. He was like, what? I was like, I've never seen so many young black people in a room before. I've never seen so many young black people. He was like, are you mad? This is just like a regular evening, like a regular... I was like, I am so shocked! I'm so (laughs) shocked! I didn't even know I was missing this, you know? I just wanted to be a part of everything. I was just so grateful.
4: Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. I think we've talked a bit in the past about people who live in kind of rural areas, even in the UK, or come from places that are or who haven't grown up in black majority spaces. And that kind of, yeah, like there's often a perception that they discover their blackness, you know, when they come to these places where there are black people and there's loads of diversity. But actually, I think it's more the opposite where you're able to kind of shed your blackness as like this identity flagger that you wear everywhere you go. And it's like the biggest label on your back. So I think Yeah, I definitely relate to that kind of experience of like, oh my God, you can just like exist and... You can just be. Yeah. I'm curious how that kind of like freedom and belonging might have like shaped or affected your writing process and like the things that motivate you or
3: inspire you in terms of your career now. So when I was running Youth Without Borders, one of the things that we always said we wanted to do for young people was like, Broaden their horizons right and we usually did that through like engineering camps and projects where we introduced young people to books from different parts of the world or whatever and part of that was always like this understanding that you don't know what you don't know and sometimes you don't even know something's possible until you're shown it and for me I think moving to London showed me that there was so much that I didn't even know was possible you know and especially when it came to literature and, you know, broadly culture and craft. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, maybe I can be a writer that isn't just focused on writing about my lived experience and, you know, writing about terrible things that are happening or whatever, like maybe I can learn to develop my craft and maybe, you know, and all of a sudden there were literal other black authors and writers that were doing incredible things. And I was like, I want to be like you. Like you not only write beautifully, but you write beautifully about things that I understand. Like this is what it is to do this thing. And this is what it is to go to theatre created by black people and to see, you know, black people on stage talking and writing and thinking about things that like I didn't even know we, I wanted to think about. And now here I am. And so I guess like, it's not only that it just broadened my horizons. It's like, I was just walking down like one hallway and then I realized I was in a skyscraper. I was like, oh my Lord, there is so much here subhanallah isn't that incredible i was like i'd never met a caribbean person before i was like wow what is this there are different islands like you know and i mean again it's like <laughs> it's so, so what is plantain i had no idea i didn't know there were plantain boards <laughs> what is the large banana Yasmin? it's so embarrassing like the things that i would say to people and they'd be like who is this chick and where did she come from I'm just out of here just, like, really embarrassing myself. But, you know, I think it's funny. I think it's, like, it's really that migrant experience, but in, like, a completely different way. Totally. Totally. It is. It is.
5: learning, isn't
4: it? It is. It reminds you not to take stuff for granted, I think, as well. Like,
5: Yeah. So, based on what you read to us earlier, what advice would you give to your younger self, especially about how your younger self saw race and saw where you lived, and your experience.
3: I would, like, encourage my younger self to, like, seek voices that, you know, aren't just the pre-approved ones by her parents. Because I think, you know, it took me a long time to kind of, like, come out from, you know, they're very wonderful people, but, you know, in a lot of ways, my dad especially, I would say, is progressive but also conservative in some ways. And so I think I was very shaped by this. So I would encourage her to look for other voices, not just Muslim voices, but... Black voices and writers. I did read Malcolm X at the age of, like, Malcolm X's autobiography at the age of nine, but I didn't realize that I could relate to that. So I would encourage her to, like, not only find other voices, but, like, understand that they related to her and that she was part of that story and part of that history and that was okay. I would also encourage her to, like, to, yes, seek all the opportunities, but not necessarily seek or accept the limelight if she wasn't comfortable with it. Because I think you can be pushed into places that are very exposing. And people want you to be exposed. People don't really care about you. You know, they're just interested in what you can do for them. So uh, I would encourage her to protect herself a little bit more maybe. And to understand that it's okay not to take every, you know, television opportunity or writing opportunity. Or even if she thought that she should, like... What are ways that you could do that in a way that'll do justice to the communities that you're a part of? Yeah. Amazing.
4: The last question I had for you was, what do you think your younger self would think about where you are now?
3: She'd be like, bitch, why aren't you making Formula One cars? <laughs> <laughs> that was the plan. We had a plan. <laughs> and you we lied. had a plan. You diverged. Uh, what are these books? Uh, why? <laughs> I think she'd be like, huh, well, at least you made it to London. (laughs) At least you're having adventures. I always thought London was a cool place, even though my dad said it was super racist. Yeah. So in my mind, I was like, maybe one day I'll move to London. But it was like a faraway dream that would never happen. So yeah, at least I did that. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been great. Lovely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. For letting me air my dirty laundry.
4: <laughs> no, that was that was great. I love it, like, when you see, like, growth and people like, this is something I would never have written today, or those are always the best ones, I think, to reflect on. That was such a
5: little, like, ray of sunshine. She was great. Yeah, she was. I was just saying how I take London for granted and what it's mm. like to be around black people all the time, and, like, seeing that, like, vicariously through her eyes was just so precious. (laughs) Honestly, that
4: part, like, even for me, like, as someone who's just lived there for the last seven years now, God, I'm old. (laughs) But I think, like, even for me, like, I didn't have, like, one moment. It was kind of, like, this slow gradation and I kind of started going to London as a teenager and got eased in, whereas I never really had that, like, land in the country, like, pull up and it's just, like, black people. It was, like, (laughs) a very slow process. (laughs) It's just black people! Planting, yeah. paving the streets. Yeah, planting. It's like planting. There's jollof <laughs> rice over here. Rice and peas. Just like it's a disgusting. festival of, of sensations. <laughs> oh. I think it's so nice to hear from, like, these other pockets of the black diaspora that don't necessarily get the same kind of airtime or the same kind of platforms as the more renowned cultures or mm. communities. And, like, especially as someone from southern eastern Africa, like... I don't know. I think it's nice to be able to say, like, I didn't know about this thing and now I do. And it's great. But like, that's not my culture. I want to learn about it and I want to appreciate it. But like, I have my own stuff and now I can like appreciate myself as a part of this bigger, wider story. But it reminded me of a story when I I got dragged once when I was like a poor little intern. And actually, it's (laughs) funnier than I remember, because someone wrote down Suya on something a piece of paper when we were planning a party. And I thought it was someone's name because I didn't know <laughs> that it was a food at the Nigerian restaurant we were going to eat at because I'm not Nigerian. And I got dragged because so someone like, how could you not know <laughs> what suya is?" I was like, "Bro, I've literally, I had never had a West African friend. I was like, I'm from Malawi. Like my best mate who was black in high school was Ugandan. Like I had no experience with Nigerian food and Nigerian culture beyond like the really obvious stuff. And I think, yeah, yeah. it's just like, it's part of life. Were you <laughs> see you.
5: where are you <laughs>
4: <laughs> like yeah oh. it's it's mad so yeah I really appreciated like Yasmin's like candidness and honesty around it yeah she's great
5: this has been an ii Studios production thank you so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode you can sign up to become a member at gal-them.com For access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue and so much more. Make sure you're following us on
4: all major social media at Galdemzine for the latest independent news and culture
5: or visit our online website, which is gal-dem.com. Don't forget, if you loved this episode of Growing Up with Galdam, be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
0: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit juvederm.com. That's J U V E D E R M.com.
2: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues